And I am excited for today. And I do want to welcome everybody in the room as well as everybody online and everybody at all of our campuses. Those of you in the room, can you just welcome everyone who's joining us? Just love that we get to gather together. And I'm excited about week three of Bottom of the Ninth. In this series, we're talking about how to thrive under pressure. That life comes with pressure, marriage comes with pressure, career comes with pressure, right? Like school and, and athletics, they come with pressure. Parenting, it comes with pressure. Living a life for faith, of faith in the world we live in, it comes with pressure. Managing your emotional well-being, well, that comes with some pressure. There's all these pressure points in life but the good news is we've been hardwired with the faculties and blessed by the spirit of God at work in our life and granted God's word is a manual. You and I, we can thrive in this life despite the pressure. And it has me thinking about my daughter Presley. She's four years old and she already has my affinity for music. She's always drawing on song lyrics in conversations and in moments. Recently we were at a, a movie theater and she had to use the restroom. So we take off running out of the auditorium and we run into the restroom, which side note here, fellas, there are moments where dads have to run with their little girls to the restroom. So please be a sweetie and wipe the seedy. Some of you were not raised right and uh, it's troubling. Nonetheless, I take my daughter into the restroom and she's there in the stall and I'm standing outside the stall and there's all these men coming in from their different shows. And at one point, I'm out in the, the restroom. There's maybe seven other guys in there. And from the stall, my daughter at the top of her lungs starts singing, this girl is on fire. <laughs> Just at the top of her lungs. It was amazing. She can draw on song lyrics at any given moment. I'm embarrassed to admit this. But if my kids get a lecture for anything, we were blessed with really good humans. I think God just knew we were limited in our capacity as parents. Our kids are just solid kids. But if there's anything they get a lecture on, it is eating. I don't know about you parents, but you know, raising some picky eaters? Like my kids are just picky eaters. And so we have a lot of conversations around the dinner table about eat your food, right? Presley's the best eater in the house. And uh, so while we are giving the oldest three a lecture, Presley's just going to work on her food. And at one point in the lecture, before she takes a bite of her broccoli, she looks at me and she says, Dad, this is how legends are made. <laughs> just takes a bite. This is how legends are made. What we're going to talk about today is in that train of thought. This it's how legends are made. If you want to live a life that is a legendary life of faith, a life that makes a difference and a life that you're proud to claim is yours, well, it is what we're going to talk about today that I think sets us up for that type of reality. And it comes to us in Matthew chapter 4. Now, let me give you some context. Matthew chapter 4 is arguably one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible, which you should know, every week you show up and hear me preach on a chapter from the Bible, I'm probably gonna say that. This might be my favorite chapter. Every single chapter just comes loaded with fascinating things, but in this chapter, you find Jesus being baptized. 
Guys, this is an amazing moment where Jesus shows up. His cousin, John the Baptist, baptizes him. And what makes this chapter so fascinating to me is it says the heavens part and God the Father speaks down upon God the Son. And he says, this is my Son whom I'm well pleased. And in that moment, it says God the Spirit descends upon God the Son like a dove. And in ways that I think our vocabulary is limited to express or to even articulate, in this moment, the Holy Trinity is on full display. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. This is fundamental to our doctrine. And and we find that Jesus comes up out of the water and then he is about to inaugurate, he is about to initiate his earthly ministry. This is a big moment. And so Matthew chapter four tells us, then Jesus was led by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to a holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot. Look at the statement. So that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. I love this, and you're gonna be encouraged to hear this, but church, today, we're talking about temptation. Yeah, no one's ever really excited for that conversation, right? No one ever's like, yes, thank you, we get to talk about all the areas where we tend to come up short and feel insecure and have a lot of self-doubt and make decisions we're not proud of. But this is something every single one of us is gonna face, We're all going to bump into temptation. I mean, if Jesus was tempted, folks, you are going to be tempted. And what is interesting to me is Jesus is about to initiate his earthly ministry. And Jesus simultaneously is about to complete his 40-day fast. So he's about to start something and he's about to end something. This is a heady concept. But I find that when it comes to spiritual warfare, Satan tends to show up in our life primarily in two windows. One, when we're just getting started, and two, when we're just getting close. Simultaneously, Jesus is just getting started, and he's just getting close. And chances are, you are embarking on a new endeavor, stepping out in faith. You're operating in a new level of obedience, and the moment you step out, just know where the Lord leads you the enemy will often meet you. It's called predictable resistance. That I believe 
the birthmark of a Christian is a target. And I believe as our faithfulness grows, so does the target upon our back. Because you were no threat to to hell when you were self-sabotaging on your own. But the moment you awakened your heart and answered the call of God upon your life, suddenly you became a threat to the devil's agenda in the world. There is now a target on your back. So sometimes there's a, there's a temptation and it comes right when you're getting started. And also there's a temptation when you're getting close. 40 days, 40 nights, he's about to complete his, his fast and the enemy shows up. And tragically, as, as a pastor, I get a front row seat to a lot of people's lives and what I've discovered is most people break down before they break through. And chances are you're, you're going through some trial or maybe you're, you're sensing some temptation or resistance or, or maybe even spiritual warfare in your life, which I know is tricky to talk about, but it's a real thing. And chances are you're closer or you're approaching something. And if you stay to the course, you'll break through. You just can't break down. But what is interesting to me is we're all gonna get hit in these moments. You are going to get hit with temptation and circumstances and trials that will tempt you to operate outside of your godly character. Jesus was hit, and you and I are gonna take a hit. And here's the easy way of understanding, hey, raising the awareness. I need to raise my level of awareness in this season because I, chances are I'm about to take a hit. Jesus, he was hungry. To state the obvious, 40 days, 40 nights without eating, homeboy was hungry. Right, And every single one of us can relate to having unchecked appetites, unfulfilled appetites, and longings and desires within our life. He was hungry. In addition to that, he was isolated. He's out there by himself. And I think a lot of times we drift into isolation. And we overlook the the critical necessity of biblical community. Do not overlook the critical necessity of biblical community. I I love church online. I love that we can stream these services all over the world. In fact, it's amazing to look at the data and see where people watch these services from. But know this, for those of you watching online, this is a supplement. It's not a substitute. You cannot substitute what value can be added to your life when we live in community with other Christians and we're edified and fortified by the community of faith. He was isolated and lastly, he was tired. You see it? H-I-T. He was tired. There was, there was fatigue setting in. And I find that problems get exaggerated when people are exhausted. You ever found that your exhaustion seems to exaggerate your problem? And so it's recognizing, hey, in seasons where I have an unchecked appetite and I'm hungry, in seasons where I've drifted into isolations, and in seasons where I am facing an abnormal amount of exhaustion and fatigue, H-I-T, I am now becoming susceptible to an agenda that wants to rob me of my purpose and my potential. So I need to raise the level of awareness in my life. What is fascinating to me about this passage is it's almost like a preseason showdown. You know, when a regular season comes around, whether it's baseball or basketball or football, during the preseason, it's almost like this marketing strategy. Hey, let's have some of last year's top teams play each other early on. It's a way to market and build some momentum for the new season. 
And so what happens is, is these teams come out and they don't give it their all, but they kind of give you a glimpse into what to expect for the coming season. And what we find in this moment is Jesus and Satan, almost in this preseason matchup, giving us a glimpse of what to expect and how this season, how this ministry, how this moment is going to end. One thing I love, probably one of my favorite segments early on in the season, ESPN has this segment called Contender or Pretender. And they have all these people come on and they, they debate, hey, are, are the Broncos a contender or are they a pretender? Hey, are the Packers a contender or are they a pretender? Who's actually going to be standing at the end of the season competing for a championship? And who right now is just talking a good game? Folks, when you look at this passage, Who's the contender and who's a pretender? And the, again, the answer seems obvious, right? Well, clearly, Jesus is the undisputed, undefeated champion. He is the contender. Satan's just a pretender. He's a, a nuisance. He's a defeated foe, and he just shows up and annoys us at times. He, there's a contender and there's a pretender. And my question there is, if that's true, why don't we live like it? If it is true that greater is he that lives within us than he that's within the world, why don't we live with some boldness? Why don't we rise up in stature? Why don't we harness our faith? Why don't we embrace a pursuit of God? Why are we not intentional about developing a godly character? If it is true that our God is undisputed, undefeated, the champion of all, why do we fall prey to a pretender and defeated foe? But every single one of us, we're gonna bump into this. And every single one of us at times is gonna come up short. But the beauty is, even when you do, you can fall into grace. Recently I had a conversation with an individual who made a, made a mistake, came up short. And he said, well, I feel like I have to go back to square one. And I said, well, define square one. What is square one? In the life of faith, square one is receiving God's grace for your life. Square one is just, I just, I am receiving and accepting God's grace. I said, so even when you make a mistake and you fall back to square one, essentially all you do is fall back into grace. But temptation, it's a real thing. And Satan comes to him and he prays on certain aspects of his life and the same agenda is gonna take place in your life. And the first is he prays on his desires. He prays on his desires. And what is interesting to me is Satan draws his attention to some rocks. And he's like, hey, tell these rocks to become bread. Now here's the question. Have you ever, have you ever found yourself hungry and looked at a rock and thought, man, if I could only bite into that right now. It's ridiculous to think about. Not a single one of us, I'm hoping not, have been tempted to eat a rock. But Jesus was tempted to eat a rock. Why? Because Jesus had the ability to turn that rock into bread. And here's something I think we, we miss in the conversation about temptation. Most people talk about weaknesses when it comes to temptation. Hey, you gotta be mindful of your weaknesses and you gotta shore up your weaknesses, right? Because that's where you're gonna fall prey to just unproductive things in your life. And I find it's actually... The opposite. It's not your weaknesses that leave you vulnerable. 
It's your strengths. And an overused strength can become a weakness. And what you find is in life, you are going to be tempted to manipulate and over leverage your giftings. So God may have given you intellect, but if you're not careful, you'll use it for corruption. Or God may have given you the gift of communication, but if you're not careful, you'll use it for gossip and manipulation. Or or God may have given you a sense of humor, but if you're not careful, you'll become demeaning and a bully with your words. And, And it's just being careful about, hey, I have this strength, but if I'm not careful, I can use it in unproductive ways. You will be tempted where you're strong. And so Satan comes to him and he tempts him and he starts to prey on his desires. Here's the thing, every single one of us, we have appetites. We all have appetites. And here's the thing, God created them, but sin distorted them. So most of our appetites are not wrong in nature, but it's sin's pervasive way of altering and manipulating and over-leveraging God-given appetites for the wrong thing. God created them, sin distorted them. And your appetites, they only know one word, more. It's the only word they know, more. I mean, you can go out to lunch today and you can feed your appetite and come six o'clock tonight that appetite is gonna say, now more. And then you're gonna go to bed and you're gonna wake up and at eight in the morning, your appetite is gonna say, I'll take some more. And then you're gonna go to work and it's gonna come lunch break and your appetite again is gonna say, I'll take some more. Your appetites, they only know the word more. They're never fully or finally satisfied. And so every single one of us has to learn to keep our desires and our appetites in check. And it's just learning, this is part of stewarding my life well. And church, I'd put this before you. Never trade in the ultimate for the immediate. Never trade in the ultimate for the immediate. We make terrible exchanges at times. Here's another way of saying it. Never trade in what's valuable for what's enjoyable. I mean, this is what we do, and we give ourselves over to feeding pleasures, fleeting pleasures. Never trade in what is valuable for what is enjoyable. Have you ever found that the things in your life, what's most valuable tends to be most vulnerable? And it's just learning, hey, I've got to guard the good deposit in my life, and I can't fall into making bad exchanges. Recently, I was on a plane, and sit down in my chair and I'm sitting next to these two young guys in their maybe early 20s. And there's a father who walks by us with his daughter and they sit down and baby girl starts crying right away. And the guy sitting next to me leans over and I'm sitting there sipping my coffee and he says, hey, is that coffee hot? And I said, well, yes, it's hot. And he says, well, can you do me a favor and can you pour it over my ears? Which I was like, excuse me? And he said, would you pour it over my ears? I said, I'm, I'm confused. And he said, I would rather you pour that coffee over my ears and have to listen to this baby cry. And I don't know about you, but I'm an antagonist. And I'm like, bro, I so badly want to take you up on this offer right now. I so badly want to dump this cup of coffee over your head. 
I said, bro, that's actually a good sign. That means that baby's tired, which means dad pushed the nap back, which if he's a good parent, he just waited for her to get on this plane so she can sleep while we're in the air. Pretty soon, that baby's gonna pass out. And sure enough, we take off, baby passes out, we had a good dad on, on board. And it just had me thinking, what a weird exchange. <laughs> you would want me to dump hot coffee over your head, then listen to this poor girl cry for a little bit. But here's the thing, it's comical. But every single one of us can look at our lives and be like, my goodness, at times I consider and at times I go through with some really bad trades. And so it's learning this is often the byproduct of unchecked desires and appetites. So you will have to be mindful of this. In addition to that, Satan preys on his insecurity. There's all those statements, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, if you're the son of God, and we're always faced with these questions of if, and at some point, a true life of faith stops living by what if and starts living as if. As if it's true, as if I believe that God, I am who God says I am. And he prays and he, he starts to insert this doubt of, of insecurity and self-doubt. And I wonder how many of you fall into self-doubt and cycles of self-deprecation. I find that insecurity is a strange form of atheism. Insecurity is a strange form of atheism. Essentially, it's saying, God, I don't believe you. I don't believe I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. I don't believe I'm a child of the most high God. I don't believe I'm more than a conqueror. I don't believe I'm forgiven, loved, cherished, and worthy of your grace. I do not believe these things. It is a strange form of atheism. And I just wonder how many of you are riddled by insecurity. And it's in our insecurity that we start operating outside of our identity. Here's the thing. If Satan can get you to forfeit or doubt your identity, he can start to manipulate and shape your activity. Your identity, it determines your activity. Who you are determines what you do, right? So you don't go to a dentist to fix your tires. And you don't go to a mechanic to fix your teeth, right? Because it's who you are, your identity, that determines what you do. And what happens in our insecurity is we start to overcompensate. We start to force the issue and we start to overextend ourselves to where we're no longer operating out of a true, natural, and authentic expression of ourselves. We start proving it. You ever found yourself trying to prove yourself? Trying to prove yourself to a spouse? Trying to prove yourself to your kids? Prove yourself to family members and coworkers and teammates and classmates, trying to just prove yourself to yourself. Have you ever found yourself trying to prove that you are who you are? And here's what Satan knows. The devil, if he can get you proving, the devil can get you moving. If he can get you proving and he can get you overextending yourself and he can get you living you know, so driven by insecurity, he can get you waffling on your identity and he can have his way with your activity. And so it's, it's learning to stand rooted. Wait a second, 
Who does God say I am? Not culture, not these people around me. Who does God say that I am? And it's standing rooted in your identity. Now, these next two concepts I've, I've been struggling with as I try to gear up for this message. I keep saying, God, help me say it to them the way I feel you said it to me. So I'm gonna do my best to unpack these things. But the next one is this idea of visibility. So he takes them on top of this mountain, right? He takes them all the way to the top and he says, now look out. Look at all the kingdoms and all their splendor. There is a lot more to offer in this world. If you've ever climbed the mountains, you know that the higher you go, the further you can see. And suddenly, Satan takes Jesus to this peak of a mountain where his visibility is extended, his vision, his perspective, it enlarges. He tries to make him aware, hey, there are other things outside of this holy city. There are all these kingdoms, as if Jesus didn't understand it. I think Jesus goes along with it, not because Satan had dominion over him, but Jesus knew, I have to go in order to show. My job here is to lay out an example and a model and a path for them to follow. So he goes. But I think sometimes in life, our visibility and our awareness of God's goodness and the goodness in this life that we don't currently possess, it tempts us in unhealthy ways. It tempts us in unhealthy ways. My mom went through a country kick growing up, and she got really big into this artist by the name of Brian White. I don't know if you guys ever heard the name Brian White. Brian White had this song, I think it was called Somebody Else's Star. And he says, I think I must be wishing on someone else's star because other people keep on getting what I'm wishing for. Why can't I be as lucky as those other people are? I guess I must be wishing on someone else's star. I mean, have you ever felt that to some degree? Like, hey, there's things that you're longing for. There's things that you know are out there and available. But you see them come in the past in other people's lives, but you don't currently possess them. And it's like, am I just wishing on someone else's star? Why is it working out for them? And it's not working out for me. And in these moments, what happens is, is we start to experience a shift in our heart where our hearts start to turn from God. Because in that moment, we start to assume and we start to have seeds of thought, is God holding out on me? And the moment you start thinking God's holding out on you, there's no doubt you're gonna start holding out on him. And so you start to become aware and Satan wants to, hey, look at this, look at this, look at this, look what they have, look what they're experiencing. I think God's holding out on me. As we're thinking about this time, Presley and I were hanging out. We had just moved to Indiana. We lived right next to a grocery store. I said, Presley, walk to the grocery store with dad. At the time, she's three years old. And we go to the grocery store and we get all of our groceries and we come walking out and I've got like six bags on this hand and I've got six bags on my right hand. And Presley was just adamant. She wanted to carry the box of cereal. And Team Johnson, we are big Cinnamon Life fans. You know Cinnamon Life fans in the house? We love us some Cinnamon Life. So Preston's like, I wanna, I wanna carry the box. Can I carry the cereal? I said, all right, carry the cereal. So we take off walking. I've got all these bags on my arms, and she's carrying this box. Now, this seems insignificant, 
But at the time, she's about 38 inches. This box is 12 inches, about a third of her size. And her carrying this one box, well, it came with more challenges than you would think. And then at one point, I literally had to put down the 12 or 14 bags that I was trying to carry because us dads tried to do it all in one trip, right? And so I had to put down what I'm carrying all to help her with the one thing that she's carrying. And it had me thinking about this conversation because a lot of times this is all we can hold on to. Yet our father is holding on to all these other things and it's not that he's holding out and it's not that he's stingy, but a lot of times it's because our hands are tiny. God is too good and we can't fully hold on to or grasp all that he has to offer and some of you, you're having a hard time holding on to grace. So you're not in a position for God to be like, here, have some peace and have some joy and have some strength and have some wisdom because you keep battling shame and you're having a hard time just holding on to grace. And God's like, I'm not holding out on you, but in your season of spiritual development, your hands are too tiny. And what happens is if you don't stay to the course, your heart will turn towards God. Life it's good, but for most people, they can only carry one box at a time. And so it's just learning to be mindful. When are the times in spiritual warfare, subtle thoughts of doubt start to creep in and turn your heart against God? Church, here's how I would say it. When it's not in your hands, don't assume it's not in his plans. When it's not in your hands, do not assume it's not in his plans. As we think about the prodigal son, there's this infamous parable that Jesus once told. Jesus is hanging out with you know, sinners and tax collectors and he's, he's extending grace and love and compassion and the religious folks are annoyed about it. They're furious. Why does this man hang out with those type of people? And so Jesus rattles off these parables ending with the infamous parable of the prodigal son. Guy has two sons and the youngest boy demands his inheritance. And he takes his inheritance from the father and he runs off into reckless living and he squanders it all. And then he hits rock bottom, right? And he turns and he, he comes back and he makes his way to the father and the father runs out to him and it's amazing the father's response. Doesn't go out to him with a lecture. He doesn't go out to him and start hitting him over the head with a bunch of I told you so's. He goes out to him and he just embraces him and he extends grace and he even takes it further. He decides to throw a party, which I love this. I think this reflects the heart of our God. He's big when it comes to celebration. And so they have this party. It actually says he kills the fattened calf, like the biggest one they've got. Everyone come hang out. My son has returned. The oldest son, the one who didn't demand his inheritance, the one who didn't wander off into reckless living, the one who's actually stayed put and actually been doing what he thought was honoring his dad and honoring the rules of the house. Well, he comes home and he hears the music and he, and he hears the celebration and he peers in and he sees what's happening and he's frustrated. He now thinks his dad is spending some of his inheritance to bless and celebrate the younger brother who wasted his. So he's uh, angry, right? 
So the dad goes out to him. He's like, man, come on. It's a fun party. You should come inside. Which I feel like that would be God's conversation with some of you. Hey, let's turn that frown upside down. Relax a little bit. It's fun. Come inside. Right? Life is good. And there's joy that can be experienced. And he says to the son, like, hey, come inside. And the son pushes back. He actually makes a statement. He's like, I've been doing everything you wished and everything you desired and everything you asked me. And he makes this statement. He says, you didn't even give me a goat for me and my buddies. Which is hilarious. And watch what the dad says to him. He says, son, you're always with me. And all that is mine is yours. I mean, Presley keeps dropping the box of cereal she has no idea that everything I'm holding in my hand, it's hers. Everything that I just purchased, I purchased for her to have. In fact, in these bags are a lot healthier things than Cinnamon Life cereal. And a lot of times it's just learning to stay to the course and trust your heavenly father. He's a good father. And the moment you think he's holding out on you is the moment you're gonna start holding out on him. So be careful your heart doesn't start to shift. The last one is enmity. Now this is probably the heftiest concept and I pray I teach this well. But here's a working definition. The state or feeling of being actively opposed or hostile to someone or something. So what happens is, is Satan, he, he plants this idea of pain in the conversation. It's the part that I, I slowed down in the reading of the text. It's the part where I said, hey, look at this statement. And it was a statement about striking his foot on the rock. Hey, throw yourself down. Will the Lord not command his angels concerning you to lift you up so you don't even strike your foot? And what he does is he's putting before Jesus, hey, this idea of pain. And what happens is his life comes with pain. And in our mind is oftentimes the question, but would a good God allow me to experience pain? So it's not just God holding out on us, which is kind of where it begins. God's holding out, I'm gonna hold out on him. I'm becoming suspicious of his character. Now I'm becoming suspicious of his conduct. I don't trust him. And now I'm starting to think, maybe he's got something against me. Maybe he seeks for me to experience pain. And we, we don't know how to reconcile. This is, this is where I'm like, Lord, help me teach this right. We do not know how to reconcile the goodness of our God with the painfulness of this life. It's hard to reconcile, right? But what is so interesting about this passage is there's all these echoes to moments past. So when it when original hearers would have heard this, hey, Jesus went into the wilderness. Wait a second, there's a wilderness story in the Bible. And he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Oh, 40 is a, well, there's a theme there. There's this time that, that Moses went into the wilderness. And for 40 days, uh, for 40 years, and, and he comes back as a liberator. Wait a second, Jesus is doing something liberators do. It would have been a hint, right? There, there's all these fascinating things. But the part that is interesting is where Satan says, hey, will not God spare you from striking your foot? As if to say, you should avoid having your foot being striked. Why is Satan so concerned about Jesus striking his foot? Well, you go back in pages of scripture, you get to Genesis chapter three. 
the fall of man and sin enters the world. And you could argue this was the biggest sin ever because it permitted and unleashed and opened the door for every other sin. And so God shows up on the scene and immediately he delivers a message of redemption. Immediately he takes responsibility and immediately he makes clear, I am gonna do something about this. I'm gonna make it right. And he says to the devil in the garden, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and I love this, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I love that idea. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And check out this statement. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God's like, look, fella, because of what you just did, just know at some point I'm sending my son and he is gonna stomp so hard upon your head, it's gonna bruise his heel. You picked a fight with the wrong guy and you messed with my kids, I'm going to stomp on your head. I mean, God like shows up and just delivers a message. And so for every day after this, Satan lived aware. I think Satan has more faith than you and I have. Man, this God does not lie. Everything he says, he doesn't make predictions. He only makes promises. And he's gonna stomp on my head. So Satan lived every single day fearing a foot that was coming his way. So when Jesus shows up, I think Satan knew, man, that's the foot. (laughs) And if I can get him to avoid hurting his foot, I can avoid getting my head stomped. And it's fascinating to me. And I find that you can't pursue your purpose and avoid pain at the same time. I wish it wasn't this way. But here's how it works. Satan wants us, try to track with me on this. Satan wants us to avoid the pain that comes before our purpose. Also that he can avoid the pain that comes after our purpose. You are such a threat to the agenda of hell. That all of hell trembles when the children of God place their feet on the ground in the morning when they wake up. You are a threat And you are intimidating to the kingdom of hell in this world. And so it's learning to rise up, which is why I love that statement. You will eat dust from this day on. I love this idea. And most of you, you've been bought by an incredible price, saved and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you are unaware of the fact that you are leaving Satan in his dust. I mean, He's no match for God's work in your life. But sometimes we're confused because we're like, well, you say that, but but then there come seasons where I feel like I'm face to face with him. And guys, brings up this track photo that I recently came across this debate. Apparently, when it comes to long distance running in track and field, there's an unspoken, unwritten code. And that is, when you are getting lapped, you're supposed to get out of the way for the lead runners to pass you by. So everybody was upset about this race because one guy's getting lapped and he's standing in the way of the lead runners and 
And so there's this huge debate about it. And here's what's interesting. Who's winning this race right now? From the snapshot, you can't tell who's the lead runner and who's getting lapped. They're on the same track, but they're not on the same lap. And listen, you might be battling some spiritual warfare in this season. And in this season, you are toe-to-toe on the track of life with the spiritual opposition. But just because you're on the same track does not mean you're on the same lap. It does not mean you're on the same lap. You are leaving him in your dust. So Satan, I'd say it this way, the devil isn't trying to save Jesus' heel. The devil is trying to save his head. And so he knows that God made a promise. I am going to put enmity, that my kids are going to oppose your agenda in the world. So the enmity is supposed to be between us and Satan. And Satan's like, but if I can twist that, and put enmity between them and God. Guys, here's the deal. The devil will tempt you to oppose God because he fears you opposing him. The devil will tempt you to oppose God because he fears you opposing him. I mean, you are mighty in stature. You are equipped for the task at hand. You are anointed for God's assignment on your life. Did you know that? You are more than a conqueror. You are a child, a son, a daughter of the father of the universe. You are a royal priesthood, a mighty warrior. Scripture says you're the lily of the valley, the masterpiece of this craftsman's work. You are a remarkable person formed and fastened in the image of God and you are a threat to the agenda of hell in humanity and you and I have the opportunity to change the world. Here's the thing, temptation is not just an opportunity to do bad. Temptation is an opportunity to do good. It's an opportunity to rise up. I believe character development requires a choice. And temptation offers us that choice. It's saying, bring it on. Bring it on because every single day I get the opportunity to remind this defeated foe, greater is he that's in me than he that's in the world. Bring it on. Bring it on. And here's the deal. Some of you are like, man, I want to get there. But I keep striking out. And I get that. And just for awareness, coming from the guy who's up here pounding his chest, acting real confident, I still strike out sometimes too. But have you ever been to a Major League Baseball game and watched the pros strike out? Aaron Judd just broke the home run record. His career batting average... Aaron Judge, 284. Not even 300 over his career. Meaning seven out of 10 times this guy gets out. But if you ever watch a pro strikeout, I mean, their swagger and confidence walking back to the dugout, I mean, it's, it's amazing to watch. They just know, it's all right, I'll get up there again. And I'm not gonna let this strikeout keep me from standing in the box and swinging for the fence. And I just... 
I get this feeling, and I have this sense, some of you, you struck out. But just know this, your sin, it's no match for God's grace. Your sin, it is no match for God's grace. And I have a feeling there's a good chance you're beginning a big inning. Oh, I nailed that one. <laughs> so swing for the fence because we need you in the game. Desires, insecurity, visibility, enmity, these are the problems. And here's the deal. Don't take the dive. You can thrive under pressure. Just don't take the dive. So church, pull out your phones. Here's six practical things you can do. Take a screenshot, pray about them, talk about them in your groups. Refuse to be intimidated. This is a defeated foe. Recognize your pattern because we all have tendencies. Refocus your attention because what you give attention to, you give power to. Reveal your struggle. We all need accountability and autonomy is a, a dangerous trap for most. Rely on scripture. Listen, if you can't factor God's word into the equation, it won't add up. And lastly, you don't have to do this by yourself. Request God's help, amen.